Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sunday, August 21, 2022. Welcome to the 27th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Subscribe to this show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is Ryan Bussey, a reformed firearms executive who formerly helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies, but quit and authored the book Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. He now serves as a senior policy advisor to the gun safety advocacy group Giffords. Ryan, thank you for joining us on The Weekend Show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me here today. So this is, it's always an interesting conversation for me to talk about firearms because I'm from the UK where we don't have any. And uh, uh, in fact, our police don't have any. You know, we have firearms units that show up if they're needed. We don't have school shootings. We don't have hardly any gun crime. We do have a knife problem, I'll give you that. But, uh, you know, so culturally, this is always an education for me. And so you're a kind of, you know, expert witness in this case. Just tell us a little bit about why you flipped. Well, I don't, um, (laughs) I'm not so sure that I flipped. I think that uh, the changing culture of our nation changed around me more so than I changed. And I this this is a common refrain with, uh, with, with people such as myself, but I grew up on a rural farm and ranch where guns were a very integral part and an important part of our culture and our life. Um, and so was responsibility. I got into the firearms industry, much like a kid who plays uh, baseball and perhaps soccer in your case, and, you know, makes the major leagues or, um, finds himself in Wembley. But, um, you know, I, 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 um, for me, it was a, was, you know, it was a dream come true in, in large part. And for the first part of my career, um, those, those sorts of dreams and the sort of responsibility I grew up with were integral in the industry, but that changed radically really starting in the early to mid two thousands and then to where we are now. And so what was it that, that made the change for you? Did, did something happen politically or, or was there a, a shooting event? What was the, what was the story? Well, there was, I look back at it now, um, and realize it was, it was more a series of things that happened at the time. I thought it was a singular event. I stood up for wild places and conservation in, um, some of our last iconic American wild places like the Rhone Plateau in Colorado, the Ball of the Doll in New Mexico, and then my sacred place, the Badger Two Medicine in Montana that were set to be drilled and industrialized by the Bush Cheney energy plan in 2004. When I did that, the industry that claimed to be for hunters and tradition and all the things that I had grown up with really viciously attacked me because I dared criticize the wrong party, even though I was an up and coming award winning executive. And I realized then that the bill of goods that I had been sold and all Americans had been sold about this tradition and culture and all the things that the industry said it was for was really just a lie. And it was becoming a partisan, you know, moneyed political machine that was all about power and money, not about the things, not about the products that it was selling. And so at the time that 2004 uh, speech at the National Press Club where I stood up and criticized that for me, that was a precipitating event. I look back now and realize it was a longer, you know, longer form sort of process than that. But that's what I thought at the time. Uh, this subject is um, polarizing only really for a certain group, isn't it? I mean, most uh sound, civilized people know that there is a major gun problem in the US. And and the likes of Wayne LaPierre, who still runs the NRA and has done since 1991, 
have a very different view of America and a, a very different view of, of gun ownership. Can you just explain really what those two sides look like? Well, yeah, first off, I agree with your statement about it being polarized for a small subset of Americans. On the other hand, I contend in my book and I believe that this sort of all or nothing um, kind of hell no extremism that was fostered and developed and grown and then handed off by the NRA to our country is not just relevant to a small subset of Americans because that hell no extremist radicalized culture now infects every single thing about United States politics and policy, climate policy, women's reproductive rights, even local school boards, right? They're all now infected by this all or nothing radicalization. But to your point, it has roots in a subset of American politics, meaning the gun, the gun culture subset of politics. And unlike England or other countries, we have a specific constitutional amendment specifically dealing with um, the gun issue. That has that and the culture that I described to you growing up, you know, hunting and shooting with my father, these sorts of cultural connections that so many Americans feel. When you throw that and authoritarian politics and 20 years of war and um, everything that is American politics into this soup, it, it's now radicalized everything. And, and um, I think it's important to note that nothing changes the political equation, nothing, either in the macro or the micro sense, like the presence of guns. If you think about it in your own personal setting, if you're at a dinner table with a few of your friends and you're having a conversation waiting on the, another friend to show up, you can have spirited conversation, maybe wine, who knows, political debates. But if that last person shows up and that person has a loaded AR-15 on their chest, right, the everything changes instantly. The party's right? over. The, 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 well, the, the power equation is completely yeah. upended. Their opinion is the only one that matters. And, and in a macro sense, that's what authoritarian, armed authoritarians are doing to our democracy, right? When they show up with arms or the threat of arms, the sort of the, the equation changes immediately. And so both in a, a sense of your daily life with just individual people and then in our larger civil societal sense, um, guns really have ha, have a unique role in that they can sort of upend the, the power equation instantly, unlike anything else that you can think of. And we've seen evidence of that recently, January 6th, Carl Rittenhouse, yes. the, these types of yes. events where it's like, you know, grab grab the weapon and... I'm very interested in this kind of machismo aspect to this, which goes back to childhood. And this is what we don't have in the UK, obviously. We know we go with our dads to fish, <laughs> right? But we mm -hmm. don't go to shoot. Um, what is it about... And, and I would just also say that all the shootings that I am aware of, certainly school shootings, are committed by men, not by women. And, and women That's tend correct. not to play a part in this, uh, in this um, crime. Uh, in any great way. So just talk to me a little bit about that relationship between a child and their father growing up in America and how a child is indoctrinated into thinking that a, a gun is anything other than a, a dangerous weapon. Well, so I, I, I try in my book and in my speeches, which I, I gave one yesterday, I, I try to uh, put some color on this, right? If you're an, if you're a young American boy who receives a rifle or is or shoots with his father, as I did, when that gun enters your hand, <clears throat> there is this sort of American swagger that sort of courses through you, right? All of a sudden, you're the master of your own destiny. When I had my little rifle as a kid growing up, which I did, I could be a lawman or a hunter. I could provide food. But it, the point was that the power equation changed quickly. And I think- You could be the sheriff. There is- I could be the sheriff, right? And, and certainly in my own mind, which really when you have the gun in your hand is really all that matters. And um, I think that is uniquely American. And for those of you who observe now or here, but observe from the outside looking in, there is this, um, in some ways it can be alluring, this American sort of John Wayne swagger taken too far and it can, ver and it can easily jump over the line where it's taken too far. Um, where responsibility is dismissed, you know, these sorts of rights, I, I contend it's a massive, massive right to, to be able to own and um, obtain firearms. It requires a massive responsibility that goes along with it. 
right now, uh, that balance for Americans is way out of whack because, as you note, now Amer- American males, largely young American males, um, are trying to fix their machismo problems, their man problems, their whatever, by running out and becoming an instant tactical badass, which is what we allow them to be because we give them the weapons of war. They can purchase them on their 18th birthday and as many 30-round magazines as they want, which the Uvalde shooter actually did exactly that. Um, it started, and, and, lo- and a part of this is because the industry actively, aggressively markets to this segment. They create this customer. Um, in 2010 and 12, the famous now man card campaign from Bushmaster, which was owned by Remington, an AR-15 company, literally said, you get your man card. This thing give you gives you the rights to not be questioned if you buy this gun. And if you don't have this gun, you're not a man. You don't have the man card. It was a literal physical card that you got in the mail. That man card rifle was used by a 19-year-old kid in a school called Sandy Hook. So you can see how this... Uh, so the marketing of firearms, it's a bit like the meat industry, isn't it? You know, you eat a steak and it makes you strong. You're a, you're a man. And, you know, yeah. there's been a whole thing with the meat lobby. Um, and I suppose the kind of wokeness that is being fought against, wokeness is probably pushing back against machismo men with their guns, isn't it? Yes. And so now we have this whole societal battle. And it's this, I like to say now it's a storm creating its own weather for every bit of wokeness that pushes back against this you have an ever stiffening backbone of the machismo crowd the marketing crowd the kyle rittenhouse saying hell no to antifa crowd the i'll go down and be a man's man and shoot people at a pro at a black lives matter protest or an antifa protest right it just keeps it, it, it it's like a cyclone we're just pumping heat and moisture into it and it just keeps spinning and spinning and growing and growing and if we don't stop it, it's um, I, I fear that our we think we've had ugly days. I, I don't think our days uh, I don't think those are over. Let's just talk about the, um, you know, the Bill of Rights and why it is that gun owners and, you know, far right Republicans, they talk about their right to own a weapon. But in the Constitution, it doesn't talk about a, a semi-automatic weapon, does it? It's probably referencing a, it's probably referencing a, a musket that can shoot a, a, a single shot. So, yeah. so how do you qualify that argument that says when people say, "Well, it's my constitutional right"? Well, we have we do have a constitutional right to own guns. The Constitution does not provide, um, you know, for unfettered any sort of unfettered right. It has to be balanced um, with responsibility and with regulations. And I think that any reasonable person in America understands that we're currently and have been in a debate about what constitutional rights are, where they stop, where they start, how broad they are, how narrow they are. Um, I guess that's been going on since we had our Bill of Rights, but it seems to have been ratcheted up here, you know, to the extreme form recently. And I, and I think we're wrestling with the implications of that as a nation. Different states have different laws on firearms, and uh, the open carry law enables people to show off that kind of machismo, gun-toting attitude. Um, do you think that there's going to come a time? I mean, I, I'm starting to feel it, but I'm interested in, in your view. Uh, we've recently, off the back of the search of Mar-a-Lago, heard uh, a lot of Trump supporters saying that, you know, the next time we fight it won't be with flags that there will be a kind of civil war between states states that enable people to you know proudly carry their guns we've seen kind of militia standing outside fbi buildings and and protesting with their with their semi-automatic weapons what what are the what are the what's the likelihood that politics is going to drive kind of warfare on the ground i don't want to you know i don't want to dramatize this but i recognize that we're already starting to see this in some places i don't think your uh dramatization is in any way hyperbolic to be honest with you i think that the country now is uh teetering on a precipice i um look many hundreds of thousands if not millions of these customers who have purchased ar-15s largely AR-15s, other guns too, but much of it, let's face it, much of it is centered around the guns of war, the AR-15. They have purchased this gun, or or many of them, and perhaps truckloads of 30-round magazines and all the ammunition that they have 
with the very thought, if not dream, of someday using those weapons to overthrow a tyrannical government. Go ask them. They'll say it. They're very forthright about it, right? Um, I own this. I must own this as my patriotic duty because I may have to overthrow a government that I disagree because with. Because it says that in the uh, Constitution. So that's how they've translated the, those kind of, they've rewritten No, that's not, that, that's not actually in the Constitution, but there, you know, there are, there were founding father documents who, you know, t- the Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, the blood or, uh, witnessing or referencing that um, every once in a while you need a good revolution. <laughs> okay, right? yeah. um, so um, and so many of these people have taken that to mean that they should do their patriotic duty. They should stand by. They should almost wish, if not hope, for a bloody civil war. And the firearms industry has tapped into that, especially for the last 15 years. And when many of these guns are sold, they're sold with that specific purpose in mind. And sometimes they come with little snippets of the Constitution in the packaging. Um, in other words, we're telling these people to be good patriotic Americans. They must be ready to do this. And so when um, something happens with Donald Trump or something happens that they perceive to be a precipitating event, um, January 6th, for instance, I don't think that we should find it surprising that a certain subset of them want to rush out and play hero. I don't, I wasn't surprised when Kyle Rittenhouse walked down on the streets of uh, Kenosha to kill people. We're marketing this to these people, like, and marketing works. Let's just talk about the number of guns in circulation. I, I read, I can't remember, but you can correct me, that there were literally millions of these semi-automatic weapons that had already been sold. Is that right? I mean, how, how many of these types of uh, weapons of war are, are currently owned by civilians? So first off, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some data points here. Um, anybody who's been to the United States or driven through any of our cities knows how chock full our streets and highways can be. Um, just drive outside of LA any given time and you would swear the number of cars, like there's, there's, there's fewer stars in the sky, right? Than there are a number of cars in the United States. Well, there's two, about 280 million car registered vehicles in the United States, 280 million. Um, there are approximately 410 million firearms in the United States. Of those, there are somewhere, and <clears throat> I'll get to why this is debatable, but there's somewhere between 20 and 40 million AR-15s, AK-47s, assault weapon type guns, 20 and 40 million. Um, that's about one for every eight or nine uh, people in the United States. The 400 and some million is about 1.2 guns for every single person in the United States. Um, it's a lot of guns, right? It's important to note that up until 2005 or six, there were virtually no assault weapons or AR-15s in the United States. There were some. I mean, perhaps 30, 40, 50, maybe on a big year, 60,000 of those things were sold in the United States each year. Today, in 2020, there were about four and a half million AR-15s and AR-15 variants sold in a single year. That's 12,000 per day. 12,000 per day. So even if you were to do an all-out semi-automatic weapons ban, that would be a ban from buying them, wouldn't it? I mean, it wouldn't change school shootings. It wouldn't limit the number of, of massacres that happen because the guns are already in possession of the people that might one day use them. Yeah, you have 40, let's say we have 40 million of them out there, which I don't think. And by the way, the reason that this is debatable, the reason I say between 25 and 40 million, the United States does not measure this. There are no official statistics. I mean, we, we, we know, <laughs> we know more about how many Nike tennis shoes are sold every day than we do about how many AR-15s yeah. are sold every day, right? Um, it's, it's craziness. So it's somewhat debatable, but it's a lot. It's in the tens of millions. There's no, there's no debating that. And to your point about a ban, yes. Um, that's why this talk of ban is so complex and in my mind sort of misses the mark. The mark is that we have this um, overt cultural problem. But we, we, have, it, it, we have a culture that glorifies this, that wishes for war, that, um, that, that, that tells these troubled young men that they can solve their problems in an instant by grabbing a weapon of war. And um, I, I, I don't know how a ban fixes any of that. There was a, uh, a a ban of sorts, wasn't there? Was it under Clinton, and then it was put back by Bush? Am I am I right there? We, yeah. So we had what we called. It was actually. It, it's referred to as the assault weapons ban. It went into effect on September thirteenth, nineteen ninety four. Um, was signed by Bill Clinton in the Rose Garden on that day. James Brady, who was um, who was President Reagan's press secretary, was beside him. Um, there were, and, and by the way, President Reagan, the iconic. 
iconic conservative hero of the entire GOP nation, right, wrote a letter to the Congress, to every single member of Congress, where he begged for that assault weapons ban to be passed. And it was, uh, barely, but it was. And it was signed into law September 13th, 1994. On September 13th, 2004, George W. Bush opted not to renew that ban. What's notable about that, though, is that uh, assault weapons technically were banned, but but the definition of assault weapon is a slippery thing. AR-15s themselves were not banned without law. You could buy millions of them. The country could, the industry could have sold millions of them and built millions of them. They didn't. An assault weapon was defined, as example, as like an AR-15, but with additional features that made it an assault weapon. So if you add a flash suppressor to it, or you add a folding stock to it, right? You added these features onto the base gun to make, and then it became deemed an assault weapon. But the standard AR-15 that you and I know that you, I mean, none of us could tell the difference between a pre-ban and a post-ban gun from 50 feet away. You couldn't tell the difference. Those guns were perfectly legal during those 10 years. Why didn't they sell? Because the industry and the nation knew that proliferating those in a complex democracy like ours would lead to what we have to today. So there used to be a voluntary prohibition. And I think the important thing about that law was that it set a social stigma that reinforced that norm so that the industry um, did not rush out and sell those, even though they could have perfectly legal. But mass shootings did go down during that period. Mass shootings did go down. And, and of course, I mean, I'm not here saying that the assault weapons ban didn't facilitate that decrease. But the truth is that in a complex society such as ours, um, there are multiple effects. There are multiple causes for every large societal shift. So Mass shootings did not stop during that time. They did decrease, and it, and who knows, there could have been other factors involved. Um, we know now, though, that mass almost every mass shooting that happens, Uvalde, I, I mean, I could start Sandy Hook, Uvalde, Sutherland Springs, Las Vegas, uh, Buffalo, like I mean, <laughs> uh, Highland Park that just happened. Almost every single one is happening with an AR-15 now. I, I want to have a, a brief but explicit conversation with you about the effect of these guns on, on humans, because I don't think people quite realize what um, a semi-automatic weapon does to a human body, especially a child. It, it's very different to shooting a, a, a pistol, right? The, the effect is such that sometimes people can't be identified because of the, the extent of the of the injuries that are caused by these weapons? Well, what should be noted first is that um, the AR-15, so let's just back up and give a broad view of this so I can answer your specific question. The um, the AR-15 is, it's true, that, and, and gun proponents say this, that it's just like other semi-automatic guns. And in some ways, that is correct. It has a trigger, it fun- we pull the trigger, it goes bang every time you pull the trigger, um, it has a barrel, it has a stock. Um, so in a lot of ways, if you, if you equate it to automobiles, it has four wheels, it has a steering wheel, it has an engine, it has a transmission, just like, just like the commonalities of all guns. But if you think about an AR-15, it is as though it is like a Formula One race car. It is very specifically designed to do something very fast. It corners very well. It gets between two locations exceedingly quick. It accelerates super fast, just like a Formula One race car, right? And we don't put Formula One race cars on the street because we don't need 19-year-old kids doing 160 miles an hour in straightaways and then turning into school zones, right? Same sort of thing. Um, An AR-15 is built to take lives in an aggressive way by soldiers on a battlefield as fast as possible. Now, it uses a 223 round um cartridge, right? And that's a 22 caliber bullet, a small bullet, and it flies very fast, 3,200 feet a second, um, about 55 grains, got about 3,200 feet a second. The average handgun bullet's much heavier than that, and it goes slow. It goes about, I mean, the average handgun bullet, somewhere in the 1,000 feet per second range. So the AR-15 is about three times faster. It's not a very large cartridge. It's not a very powerful cartridge. When people say it's very powerful, it's not really true. Almost all hunting rifles are way more powerful than an AR-15. But it's a fast little cartridge that at short ranges, 50 to about 250 yards, shoots this fast bullet that comes apart when it hits things, and it's meant to rip flesh apart. And that's why varmint rifles if, if, use the same cartridge. So people who want to kill vermin in their yards or in their fields, 
and and I know some people in the UK do this, um, they use this same cartridge because the bullet comes apart and it rips things apart when it hits it. It's small and it goes very fast. Um, but don't think about it as high power because like a 30 out six hunting rifle, far, far, far more powerful. But the thing about that, but the thing about a 30 out six versus this gun is this gun is low recoil, right? It's not a lot of powder. It's not meant to shoot a deer at 500 yards away. It's meant to shoot things very quickly. Think of that formula one again, very quickly at ranges between 50 and 250 yards away. That's why sh soldiers march into battle with it. It stays on target. It shoots very quickly. They can put lots of lots of shots and very accurately, very quickly follow up shots. Same things we see in mass shootings. And this is why 32 children were killed at Stockton, and this is why 31 were killed in the University of Texas, and 25 killed at, in Springfield at Thurston, because the num the number of people that can be killed very very quickly is all because of this gun. And if this gun didn't exist, and school shootings were done with other weapons you wouldn't see death on such a large uh, scale. Is that right? Well, you, so, um, look, you could have a mass shooting with a bolt action hunting rifle of which I own many and lots of hunters across America own many. Um, the last, the last mass shooting we saw with a bolt action rifle was actually university of Texas. I don't know if this is the one you're referencing, but that was 1960 something, 70 something. Like that guy got up on a flagpole with a bolt action rifle. Nobody knew what to do. That was the last one. Since then, everyone with a rifle has been with an AR 15 semi-automatic style rifle. Why? For the same reason the military picks it. It's specifically designed to do this very quickly. Um, you could, um, some kid could march into a school with a bolt action rifle. And sadly, that kid would probably kill multiple people. It would be a low number of people because the, the rifle functions so much slower and has such less um, efficient recoil management. He would have a hard time shooting it quickly. But, you know, here's, here's another analogy. British films are all about like poor people kind of, you know, having deep conversations with each other. This is a very, very, you know, s simple example. American films, successful American films are, you know, the Marvel movies, Iron Man, guns and shooting and explosions, right? That's kind of the two um, kind of creative palettes of the movie industry. I is it any wonder that there is a desire by people who have a grievance or who, you know, who choose, and I believe it is a choice to go and shoot up in a school to kind of go for the type of weapon they've seen in films. I, I don't believe that, you know, video game. there used to be this argument that video games made it worse. I don't agree with any of that. But I do recognize that films and popular culture in the US still celebrates weapons and killing and death and destruction and, you know, a whole lot of explosions. And Hollywood makes a lot of money out of that. True. There's no doubt about it. And one of the best ways to sell guns, as the firearms industry knows, is to get them placed in movies or video games. I saw it all the time and it's celebrated and it does sell a lot of guns. Um, and, and so <clears throat> are the causes, I mean, I think to your point, are the causes in America probably diffuse, more diffuse than just picking on a singular thing? Well, of course they are. It's a complex society with 370 million people and lots of different inputs. Of course they are. But I don't think we can, we can or shy away from the fact that there are quite some, I mean, Japan has a huge gaming culture, a huge game. And, and for the most part, watches most of the same movies we do, right? Um, they don't have Parkland. They don't have Sutherland Springs. They don't have Las Vegas. They don't have Uvalde. They don't have Highland Park, right? What's the difference? this glorification and, and easy access yeah. to guns. And in fact, Shinzo Abe was uh, executed the other day with a homemade gun. Yeah. That's what was necessary in Japan because you can't buy a gun there. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and to be clear, I'm not advocating for a culture in which um, I can't go purchase a hunting rifle or a shotgun or a self-defense pistol for my family or to, to hunt with my boys. I'm not. What I am saying is if we don't get this responsibility thing balanced, None of these rights are going to matter, right? An authoritarian culture that upends democracy is not going to care about the Second Amendment. That's why this, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Boogaloo Boys, all these people that think they're going to um, stumble into some sort of authoritarian utopia where everybody owns guns and gets along. That's silly talk. 
It's absolute silly talk. Let's talk about the politics of this, because Republicans will have you think that Democrats want to take away all of your guns. That's the rhetoric that is used. They're coming for your guns. They're coming for your rights. This is this is the rhetoric. And it's untrue. There is obviously a push for gun control for, on the left, uh, certainly a, a semi-automatic weapons ban. Let's just talk about the, the, the kind of modern politics of this now. Do you, do you feel like the Democrats are doing enough? Are they, are they using the right language? Do they understand how to really kind of fight against this Republican rhetoric that they're coming for your weapons? Um, I think there are lots of well-meaning folks, many of whom I've met who are lawmakers, who are trying, who literally are really trying to do the right thing. Do I think that the rhetoric... And the approach is always effective as it should be. No, I don't. Um, and, and, and the truth is that, uh, we allow the far right to set the narrative, to set the rules of the game by saying anything, including universal background checks is quote unquote infringement on our rights, right? This word that's in the second amendment shall not be infringed. Um, I don't believe I, in fact, I believe that kind of talk is this complete bunk. There's nothing that says and there's nothing in the second amendment that says, and we should make sure everybody is armed and crazy and does nothing responsible, right? But that's what they would have us believe. So I, I think the way the Democrats should approach this is to say, look, we understand the right to own guns. We also understand the rights of kids in Uvalde. We also understand the rights of those parade goers in Highland Park. And if we're going to maintain our rights, including our Second Amendment rights, they must be balanced with responsibility. And that either happens voluntarily or it happens through regulation. Um, I argue that the gun industry used to do this largely voluntarily, right? We talked about during the assault weapons ban where the industry didn't proliferate AR-15s largely through a sense of responsibility. That has been erased. So if the industry and gun owners will not be responsible, sadly, we must have laws that, that do the regulating and enforce responsibility for everyone else. Because that little kid in Uvalde, um, those parade goers in Highland Park, they have rights too. And that's part, that's, that's the way a complex society works. The magic happens in the gray area. And the, the, the far right wants the argument to happen on the fringes. It's either this or this. It's black or white. It's one or 10. It's up or down. But that's not true. We're talking about the small slice of regulation in the middle of everything. And I think if the Democrats focused a little bit more on, on that sort of language, um, I mean, because, People live with infringements every day. The people who say they won't accept infringements accept them every day. Why? Well, I don't know. I walked outside and I noticed that not every eight-year-old has a howitzer. <laughs> like there aren't A-10 warthogs parked in my neighbor's parking lot. Um, you know, the guy down the street doesn't have a thermonuclear warhead, right? So we have infringements already. It's not about whether or not we have infringements. It's about which, what they are and how reasonable they are. There's a story this week out of North Carolina uh, where gun reform advocates have decried absolute insanity, a move by the sheriff there to arm his school resource officers with assault rifles on campus in addition to their service issue handguns. Uh, this is Madison County Sheriff Buddy Harwood said he felt obliged to act in hope of preventing another massacre such as the one at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas that killed 19 students and two teachers. Where, where, how does this sit with you, the idea? Because we've heard this a lot, you know, from Republicans, certainly, in, and uh, governors in, you know, in, in these states where these shootings have happened, that arming teachers, we heard this from Trump, even when Trump was president, you know, arm the teachers, turn the school into a fortress, that this is actually a much better way of, of protecting from future school shootings than, than trying to remove guns from society. So there's a move in Ohio, um, similar to the uh, North Carolina story you're talking about, that actually pushes to arm teachers, not just school resource officers. Um, and of course, we have the North Carolina situation that you reference. Um, and and um, without without getting terribly colorful here, I, I do want to say it's absolute effing insanity. It's insanity. Um, we pile so much on our teachers to begin with in our educational system. Um, it's sort of at the end of all of our of all of our American cultural woes. We have income distribution. We have, you know, a, a bajillion societal problems and we seem to force all, fixing all of those onto our educational system and our teachers. Do we really think 
that throwing guns into that situation, we had what, a hundred, a hundred armed professionals in Uvalde and they were all paralyzed by one kid with an AR-15. We had a security guard at the Topps grocery store in Buffalo. Um, I don't know how many good guys with guns we need, but apparently we don't have enough. It, so when the next shooting happens and we arm one of these guys, so we need two, we need 10. Literally, like when you say make a fortress, that's what we're going to end up doing and making a fortress. It just seems so much more logical to me to just stop the troubled kids that are coming in there with guns in the first place. Um, and, and, and so foolish, insane, um, dangerous, all of those things, um, I think they all apply. I have children in uh, public school here in the US and I talk to my daughter. She's only six, but she explained to me that they do a thing called um, stranger uh, drills. They're, they're not called shooter drills. They're called stranger drills. And she explained to me how they all have to, you know, get under the table and the door gets locked. And this is my six-year-old daughter explaining this to me. She doesn't understand about the, the bigger picture. I've never talked about school shootings to her. I don't think that's appropriate yet. But I, I recognize that this is a reality of bringing kids up in the United States. Um, I, I mean, I have so many kind of emotional feelings about this subject. And when you have kids, obviously, it changes everything. What is the mindset of gun rights activists and Republican lawmakers and governors who cannot get emotional about the death of children in schools, that, that to them, gun ownership is more important. What do you think about these people who have positions of responsibility, lawmakers, who just cannot get connected emotionally to this subject? So, as with some of my other answers, I'll give you a bit of a roundabout answer, but I think it will illuminate why this is so crazy. All of us value the freedom to drive our vehicles from one place to another, right? And that encompasses, that freedom to drive and be mobile um, really does encompass a lot of our other rights, the, the right to pursue a livelihood to happiness, to go to a job, to go to a grocery store, to supply, to feed one's family, right? So that it's not just driving a car. It's, it's a big, it's a big set of rights that are encompassed in that. We don't value it so much that we think it's okay to drive 90 miles an hour through a school zone and mow down kids. And if we did, and, and somebody said, Hey, you killed eight kids by driving through there. And this is the equivalent of someone saying, well, that's just, you know, that's that's the price we pay for having automobiles and being able to drive across town. Sometimes you're just going to have to somebody just going to mow down some kids. Well, you could say, well, why don't you put a sp school speed zone limit in there? And, and, and the equivalent of the Republicans would be saying, nope, got to be able to drive 90 miles an hour right wherever you want to go. If this sounds incredibly just detached and insane, it is. It is detached and insane. The way that those people rationalize these things is to say, well, yeah, I mean, some kids die and people do bad things and that's the price of freedom. You know, that's what, that's what we're going to end up doing because, um, we need to have, we need to give 18 year old kids in Uvalde, Texas, the ability to buy AR 15s literally the day they turn 18 years old, um, and buy as many eight, uh, 30 round magazines as they want. The kid in Uvalde had 60, six zero 30 round magazines, 60. Um, we don't have to do that. It, it, that is in no no way, shape, or form any more sane than allowing somebody to drive 90 miles an hour through a school zone. Same thing. We know not to rationalize one, and we rationalize the other. I don't get it. And these Republicans, these governors, these lawmakers, they have children. They have families. They have kids in school themselves. I mean, at Uvalde, famously now widely reported, we had parents of children screaming at law enforcement get in there, do something. Parents running in themselves to try and do something because they felt completely um, ignored by, by the, the very police who, you know, with their machismo guns, as you say, they were completely stunned by this situation. Their training had only happened a few weeks earlier, and yet they still didn't have the cognitive skills to go in. So they can make an argument for owning these guns. They can make an argument for allowing these guns to be sold. But when it came to it, when it came to that actual moment where we needed 
good guys with guns, they let us down. Well, the truth is that when the shooting starts, when the bullets start flying, decisions get really hard to make, right? Um, we know this in war. We've seen it, you know, lots of people in war freak out. They can't shoot back. I've even seen it in hunting situations where somebody thinks they fired a gun five or six times and all they did is cycle the bolt five or six times. They literally cognitively um, do, do not understand in a high stress situation what just happened. And so back to our school resource officer or a teacher or... We have trained professionals who show up in Uvalde and they can't get it right. And, I, and I'm really not as easy as it is to pick on all of those trained professionals. And I think there's lots of mistakes made, probably more than you or I can count in, you know, five of these episodes. Um, but the fact is that when bullets start flying and you get in a stressful situation, it's hard for any human to perform perfectly. And we're asking teachers to perform perfectly. We're asking resource officers to perform perfectly. Like, it's, it's just not going to happen. Let's talk about the argument that, um, that gun advocates use about people that commit school shootings. They, they blame it on their mental health. And they, they use the kind of uh, the psychiatry of this to claim, oh, well, you know, he was crazy. And that's why he did it. And not everyone is crazy. I mean, this is a very naive conversation isn't it when they get into this because you know we all suffer from mental health issues to a greater or lesser degree but we also know the difference between you know keeping ourselves in check and go buying a gun and killing 30 people well if we really do have all of these mental health problems that you properly note that the other side often denotes and i think we look the truth is just like any society there are lots of mental health challenges. We all have them and to some degree. We all have them. If, but if it is really this bad that we have this much mental health, these many mental health issues, are we then also saying that we should make it easier for these sorts of people to go buy guns when they're literally mentally ill? Because that's what we're doing. Um, most of the Republican approach at this point is to reduce the regulation on purchasing guns. Not to increase it, to reduce it. When red flag laws are discussed, it's the, the Republicans say, no, 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 no. We need to reduce that. That, that could be a problem, right? So, um, if, if, if mental health is this big an issue, then that just makes the gun and gun issue that much more, that much more of an issue. And the red flag laws didn't help in Uvalde, did they? Well, there are red flag laws. The red flag laws have to be properly funded. They have to be aggressively enforced. They have to be researched. There has to be a system that records these incidents and then follows up on them. And so, um, as with many things on the GOP side of the ledger, it's easy to say, well, mental health, it's a lot harder to, to do all of the things to fund everything in the system to make that work better, to make those things be enforced. Um, and that's what we have to do. We, not only do we just need a red flag law, we need a system to track it, enforce it, remove it, all, all of those things. Can we just talk very quickly about the uh, su Supreme Court rule that uh, happened uh, a month or two ago, saying that uh, Americans have the uh, broad right to arm themselves in public? They struck down this New York law that placed strict limits on carrying guns outside the home and uh, set off a scramble in other states that have similar restrictions. They reckon that this now could spark a, law, a wave of lawsuits um, seeking to loosen existing state and federal restrictions. Um, it'll force five states, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts and New Jersey, uh, home to a quarter of all Americans to rewrite their gun laws. Uh, the Supreme Court, as we know, is stacked in a very fascist direction right now, isn't it? And And, you know, tragically, it was really, I guess, Trump's lasting legacy was putting people in who are going to, um, you know, fight against rational, civilized debate at, at every juncture. This is very much part of that, isn't it? Yeah, well, this whole originalist idea, which is now being pushed by many of the Trump appointed judges, and of course, some others who are on the court before then, uh, Clarence Thomas has now glommed onto this idea. Um, or his wife has, with, and he's... You know, well, certainly, yeah. yeah. But this idea that we're going to somehow divine the originalist uh, idea of the way the Constitution was written 
in which case, like muskets were all that existed, right? Um, so yes, it's a twisted thing. I, I do, but the, the nuts and bolts of where we are, and I could bemoan all this forever, but the case is decided and it's going to have legal implications, whether I sit here and bitch about it for 20 minutes or not. It's not going to, it's, it is going to happen. And so there, it's going to complicate these local and state, um, regulations for sure. I don't think, and, and one of the, interestingly enough, one of the most um, sort of articulate arguments for sensible gun regulation is it actually in the Heller decision that was authored by Antonin Scalia, the most famous gun case prior to this Bruin case. And it essentially says, well, yes, um, and I'm going to paraphrase Scalia here, but yes, you have the right to defend yourself in your home with a gun. But people should note that this decision does not mean that reasonable regulations cannot be put on guns to protect the general public. It, it goes on for paragraphs, but it essentially says that. And so I think now we're going to see a reshuffling in local and state um, areas about what those reasonable regulations mean. They'll probably focus more on marketing and distribution and less on the actual possession and sale of a gun, because I think that I, I do think the Bruin case is going to complicate those enforcements. Can we end on a slightly more optimistic note? Um, and this is from a story that comes out of Florida, uh, unusually. Uh, this was a statewide, a statewide survey that was done last month uh, that showed that large majorities in both parties told researchers that they support universal background checks and a mandatory waiting period for anyone trying to purchase a weapon. Um, this is... This really supports my view that we are underrepresented, that actually our our governors and our our Congress people and our senators have views that are not in line with the people, their constituents, the people they represent. So is this more a case that actually if you were to survey Americans, I know this was just Florida, but if you were to survey Americans that actually people are civilized and people are logical and they recognize that background checks are the least that should be done across the board. And really it's politics that is pushing this a position, this opinion that is not followed through in, in the wider society. I think there's little doubt that what you say is correct. Um, and the way I explain it, I guess, is like, like background checks pull at 82%. Red flag laws pull at 80%. Um, I could go on down the line and I could get several policies down and they're still pulling in the 60%. Um, as you know, hardly anything pulls at 82%. Hell, yeah. ice cream doesn't pull at 82%. Um, and yet here we are and yet we cannot pass it. And why is that? And, and your political assertion is exactly correct. Because guns and gun politics and the extremist hell no um, way that, that gun politics have, have infiltrated all of our other politics means that, you know, we look at this as a little pebble on the road, an 82% pebble that we ought to be able to pick up and just toss over the fence. But when we reach down and pick it up, it's attached to a larger boulder and that boulder is attached to a larger mountain. And the boulder and the mountain are the GOP and the DNA of the entire right. By attacking and by going after something as simple as background checks, we're not actually just going after that. We're going after um, the very way in which the GOP has constructed itself and its politics. And that's why it's so much harder. We're not just we're not just trying to pass a policy. By doing that, we would be undoing the very way the political right has constructed itself. And that's why it's so much more difficult. That's why there's so much more ardent. That and the fact that right now, a, a, a very few number of citizens, a very few number of senators, I don't I'm I don't remember how many it is. It's 13, something like that. Um, or uh, uh, they represent um, a very small percentage of, of the population, right? So, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana have about, uh, oh, I don't know, a third the population of Los Angeles. We have, there are six or eight senators in those states that I just noted. And yet, if, you know, maybe um, Los Angeles has in the grand scheme of things, uh, access to about what three quarters of a senator because of the way, yeah. you know, there's two senators from California. In other words, we have a system set up now that is in large, in a large way, not very democratic. Um, and, and guns, I don't think it, I don't think this rears its ugly head anywhere as bad as gun politics. The, the the makeup of the Senate and of Congress, I mean, a lot of this was designed to keep white people in power, wasn't it? It, it was, you know, the, the Electoral College, all of this 
what's really behind this are quite dark forces, you know, the, 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 the land grabbing and, and, and slavery. I mean, it's all embedded in, in this. How much is racism and the racism conversation, national conversation, how much does that feature in, in the gun conversation and the talks that you give? Well, um, you're right. Um, the filibuster, uh, many of the, like many of these systems were set up to maintain the status quo in, in times when the status quo was pretty damned undemocratic in the United States. Um, lot, lots of, you know, come on. Women didn't vote then. <laughs> Black people certainly didn't vote. They were still owned by white people. So, so that's when all of these laws were established. Um, and certainly the filibuster and, and some of our electoral college issues among those. Do I think that racism plays a large role in gun and gun politics? Yeah, not exactly hearkening back to that, but I can tell you that this became became a major issue in modern U.S. politics as soon as America's first black president started to lead in the polls in 2007. I saw it personally with my own eyes. Prior to 2007, when Barack Obama, again, became the leading candidate for president, the United States had not had never purchased more than 7.5 million guns in a single year ever in the history of the nation. By the time Barack Obama left office, the nation was purchasing uh, over 16 million guns a year, more than doubled, more than 100% increase. Every single executive that I knew in the, in the shooting sports industry referred to Barack Obama, not as president or not as Barack or not as Obama. They called him the best gun salesman in America. That was his official gun industry moniker. And so on one hand, he was vilified. He was taking the country apart. And, and I dealt with racial invective, especially from the dealer and consumer level all the time, like almost every day. Um, conspiracy stuff that now makes, you know, to me is, is at the root of QAnon. Um, but it was always laced with racial invective. And, um, I, I just don't think you can get away from the central way in which race, uh, plays a role in this. The last thing I'll say is the highest gun sales year ever wasn't the last year of Barack Obama's, um, reign of his, of his, uh, of his term. It was during the Black Lives Matter protest and counter protest and COVID of 2020. During that year, almost 23 million guns were bought and sold and almost 4 million of those were AR-15s. So race really, race and the fears and the conspiracies that come from it really do play a central role in this. Okay. Thank you very much, Ryan Bussey. Appreciate your expertise and your ongoing activism and and campaign. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that and support you where we can. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News Daily podcast, which drops every morning. And leave an iTunes review if you can. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.